Listening to Film Wax Radio. Hey everybody, it's Adam Shartoff, your host of Film Wax Radio. It's Friday, November twentieth, two thousand and twenty, and this is episode number six hundred and forty-four of the show. Anyway, this is um, an interesting week. I decided to just leak that. Uh, so I, I I let leak that I'm going to have a co-host on the show now. I don't know if that is going to ultimately mean every episode. It might. It certainly right now means occasional thing. And I've mentioned recently that, you know, Filmwax Radio this coming year, 2021, will be the 10th anniversary. We'll have the 10th anniversary for the, the show. Uh, as I've said many, many times, it, back in 2011, the show started on an internet platform, internet radio platform called B-Box Radio, and I left there with the show, uh, deciding just to podcast it. I think it was 2013, but, you know, we're approaching the 10th year either way, and and uh, I want to change things up a little, and, and a lovely opportunity came about, and I'm going to talk about it for a second, then we're going to go into today's episode. I had the opportunity to meet Ileana Douglas, who is uh, the person I'm speaking about, through a number of connections that were going on over the course of the last year. Somebody I was work, an author I was working with, uh, did her podcast, uh, which Ileana had until I don't know four or five months ago. It, they pulled it, they yanked it, and then I invited Ileana onto my show, and then. We were talking, and you know, I know she really enjoyed doing a podcast. She she is a an incredibly knowledgeable film historian in her own right. So she, you know, she's a actor who's been in countless films and episodics over the last thirty years, right? And she wrote a book not long ago called "I Blame Dennis Hopper." From there came a podcast as an offshoot of that. She is a great interviewer. She has had a long term uh, relationship with TCM. In that regard, since she's both a film historian and an interviewer, uh, she loves talking to people. And I have the same interests. We're from the same generation. We grew up in the Northeast in the same time. We have the same references. So we built this chemistry and friendship over the time. And so we've discussed this endeavor. And I'm ready for something new, for sure. We're still kind of figuring out what that will look like. But if you're a regular listener, I think you'll really, really be excited. Uh, I mean, I hope you're excited for the show, for what I do. But to just do the same thing year in and year out, it, yeah, I guess you could do it. But I, I like to change and evolve. And this show has given me lots of opportunities to do that because I myself have really grown into, I think, a relatively knowledgeable film person and film historian on the light side. I'm not as knowledgeable as others, I guess, but I have some knowledge. Anyway, so we're going to start to introduce Ileana to the show on a regular basis. And then in the next couple of episodes, we're going to 
drop the the first one of those, which is with author Scott Iman. Scott's done this podcast before with his last book. It was about the friendship between uh, Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda. This new book, which is currently available, is called Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. Uh, I believe that this conversation will be on the Filmwax Radio YouTube channel as of Monday, um, the I guess the 23rd, and um, it will be up on the podcast shortly thereafter. But we'll see in a couple of weeks. We might have another episode with Ileana, and then maybe start increasing the uh, appearances as we move into the winter. So that's my uh, news, and I, I hope you're here again. I, I, let me know what you think. I guess write in. You can find us on Facebook under Film Wax Radio, or you can uh, hit me up on my own Facebook page. Uh, of course, we're on Twitter and Instagram as well. So let me know what you think of that uh, news. Okay, so this is episode 644, as I mentioned, and we actually, in a rare case, have two actors today on this show both making their first appearances on the podcast. This this is not a typical uh, episode where I have two actors from two different films. The first one is a young man named Malachi Kirby, who is in one of the five new Steve McQueen films. He has decided to do a series of sorts of five films under the banner called Small Acts. And they all deal with the West Indian experience in London, uh, I believe, in the 70s. I'm not sure they're all set in the 70s, but I know the three I saw were. And the, f- the one that we're going to uh, be dealing with today on today's episode is called Mangrove. I saw it at the New York Film Festival. I enjoyed it very much. I was very happy to bring somebody on. And so Maliki was available, and we're going to talk to him about his role uh, in a minute. And then then we're going to bring on the actor Stephen Dorff, who, uh, of course, has been around quite a while and people know. And we'll get to him in a little bit. He's in a new movie called Embattled, which is a very intense film, let me tell you. It's a, sort of a, let's say, a more modern, update version of, uh, the, of Raging Bull to really oversimplify, just to give you a kind of a broad and simple idea of the film uh so but first we're going to talk to Malachi kirby you know steve mcqueen i saw his first feature hunger i think it was at new directors new films i don't know like 11 years ago and i was really blown away and i remember he did a q a after it and i ran up to him and um snapped a photo but and more importantly got to say hello and meet the guy and sure enough not surprisingly, he has become one of the major filmmakers of our day. This is a very ambitious project, the Small Axe Project, and uh, Mangrove is a thoroughly intense, really, really relevant film as in terms of what it deals with um, in terms of race and police brutality. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly relevant uh, yet it's set in the 70s in London. A brief description of the of film. In the late 60s, Frank Creechlow, the Trinidad-born owner of a cafe in Notting Hill, London, increasingly found himself and his establishment the targets of white police intimidation and brutality. 
a meeting place for the local West Indian community as well as the area's black activists and intellectuals, the Mangrove Restaurant was raided numerous times without any evidence of illegal activity. Finally, the fed-up community took to the streets in protest, resulting in the arrests and violent treatment of several demonstrators. An epic of Steve McQueen's small acts anthology, this vivid and gripping dramatization of these events and the resulting successful landmark 1970 trial of the defendants, who came to be known as the Mangrove Nine, and some of whom acted as their own counsel, is a stinging indictment of a system rotted by racism and a powerful portrait of resistance passionately performed by a remarkable cast led by Sean Parks as uh, Critchlow, Letitia Wright as Althea Jones-Lacointe, and Malachi Kirby as Darkus Howe. Uh, Mangrove will be uh, available, uh, the first of these five films available on Amazon Prime as of today, Friday, November 20th. Lovers Rock, Red, White, and Blue, Alex Wheatle, and Education will be rolling out every Friday on a weekly basis over the course of these next month, uh, over the course of the next month. So, again, they'll be available on Amazon Prime. If you would prefer... You can also watch either of these segments with Malachi or Stephen on the Filmwax Radio YouTube channel. They both are there for your viewing pleasure, if you would prefer. Or stick with this episode as you are and enjoy listening. This is uh, my conversation with actor Malachi Kirby regarding the Steve McQueen film Mangrove here on Filmwax Radio. <laughs> On Sunday, the 9th of August, in North Kensington, a demonstration took place against the police, which degenerated into totally inexcusable violence. There may be some who believe that they have been the victim of injustice at the hands of the police. Others who, like parasites, feed on these beliefs and seek to turn them to their own advantage, deliberately creating hate and violence. These defendants are all guilty of the serious criminal offence. This attack on a black establishment is not an isolated event, but a sustained campaign against black people. And today we are saying enough is enough. Hey, Adam, how you doing? Malachi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Where are you? I am in a, a little apartment in central London. Oh, you are? Yes. Oh, very good. How far from Notting Hill is that? Oh, the- good question. I'd say about maybe 20 minutes, half an hour drive. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's such a sprawling city. But that's 20 minutes is mostly due to traffic. Yeah, for sure. For sure, yeah. <laughs> it's been a while i've been to london many times but years back and i haven't been there a while and i miss it i miss my trips there okay where are you from new york okay i'm a little north of the city right now in a in a safe area north of new york city so okay but, nice yeah um new york today and how covid must be affecting the um yeah it's how- it, that's a whole other podcast. I'll invite you onto that in due time. <laughs> I don't want to neglect neglect our film here, but yes, 
Well, you know, because I haven't been able to visit, I would say that these little, these small acts films are, you know, especially Mangrove, uh, bring me back closest to the feel of London and of England uh, for, you know, obviously for better or for worse, but than almost anything I've seen in a long time. The way he shot this is just uh, transports one to right to the time and place very successfully, you know? Of course, you live there, so you have a different experience with it. Uh, but you weren't even probably, you know, you're definitely not born when this movie, these movies take place, right? No, I wasn't. Um, if it wasn't for my mom, then this, these films would be entirely foreign. But I have my mom kind of, you know, she shared with me references of what it was like growing up. Um, and, you know, she used to li- listen, she still listens to Lover's Rock, you know, and um, that wasn't the episode I was in, but that time period, you know, the music and the food is the same. Um, the costumes I've seen looking at pictures when my mom was a kid. Um, so it definitely rang true for me being involved. <laughs> Did your mom grow up in, in London too then? Close yes, to that time frame? Yeah, she grew up in South London. So that had, yeah, so that I, as you're saying, that must have played a, a been a very big help to you in terms of the kind of due diligence your research your work preparing yeah for sure I definitely was picking her brain about some things you know and the music she was listening to at the time and how she would dance at the time um you know like if you know little words that she would use at the time to you know you know like you have like slang and just common day slang and just yeah I was definitely picking her brain and looking through old photos Um, I was looking at so much photos actually for this um because I, I find them so they just kind of bring you into, you know, a whole other period of, of time, you know, where you just have photos that weren't posed, you know, just people that, you know, didn't know that we'd be looking at them 30 years later. You can just kind of have a little kind of fly on the wall moment. Absolutely. Your character is is a part of a group of, of young people who are actively protesting and, and in fact, against their parents' wishes their parents in this film it mangrove seemed to kind of uh with some exceptions they seem to really be uh obviously very cautious about pushing back too hard is that is that fair to say whereas the young folks in the film are really really angry and uh have had enough of police brutality and you know see like the future is as possibly they want it to be a fair future for them to grow up in would you say that's correct yeah, I think one of the things that struck me about, you know, this particular battle that the Mangrove Nine were facing, um, especially for Darkus and especially for Althea, um, was this awareness that this fight wasn't just for themselves, you know, that um, they were coming together for the unborn child, as Althea's character says, you know, for, right. the, for me, essentially, you know, for the people that were to come that he didn't know existed yet. Um, and that was this, that was part of what strengthened them to keep going for 11 weeks in a trial, you know, um, knowing that they were already on the right side of justice and having to fight this case that should have just not happened in the first place. Um, yeah, that definitely, I, I would say that rings true. You must know that the film is resonating for American audiences. I would hope so. Um, you know, I think that there is this idea, kind of possibly even globally, that, you know, with civil rights and... Um, this kind of Black Lives Matter movement and even the Black Panther movement, um, it only happened in the US, you know, and that's because most of the stories that we hear happen in the US and, you know, it was happening in the UK too. It was happening in Trinidad. It was happening across the globe. And so I'm glad that there is a light being drawn to these stories now um, in that there is a united effort that's been happening 
you know, um, as, as, as long as it's been happening. I mean, the movie deals with police brutality, uh, specifically the opening of this restaurant. Why do you suppose the restaurant proposed such a threat, the, the local police with the white, almost entirely white police force? Why, why was the restaurant such a threat? Uh, what do you think it symbolized? Change. Um, I yeah. think that's pretty much it. So something different. Um, it was owned by, right? It's owned by a West Indian Brit. Yes. First, right. So that's that. That's what you, is that what you're getting at? Well, no. I mean, not even just that, but just the idea of something different. I mean, um, I mean, I, I could never speak for those police officers, and you know, truly. But I think that there was a fear of of change of of something, you know, you know, you have those conversations where they're talking about, you know, it's, it's okay that you have a restaurant, but just make the same food that we usually eat. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, I see. Yeah. The idea of having something different, put a, a, a fear in them for some reason, I guess, because of the power of culture, um, and the influence of culture. Um, and I think it's a tight, for me personally, I think it's entirely ir- irrational, of course, um, but yeah, I think that they were just scared of change, not necessarily something bad, just something different. Yeah, and I, I think you, I didn't even think along just the fact that it's ethnic food. <laughs> it's like this way, this is not how we do things here, right? That could propose a threat. But it's interesting because, I mean, that is definitely resonating here because in this country now, the, 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 the totality of ethnic groups, what we call minorities, are now the majority of the country. So uh, there's a certain percentage of the population that are very feel very threatened by that. And hence, I think what you're seeing in this country is a, resp- was a reaction to that. So while, while I was watching the movie, I was thinking, my God, it's like, uh, this really is like, uh, says it all, you know? What, yeah, what, you, know? I mean, you know, we, we filmed this last year, summer, and, you know, we had no, well, I had no idea. I don't think anyone had any idea of what was going to happen this year, you know, in terms of the, the marches and, and COVID and everything. And, um, sure, right. So there is a particular resonance, although this conversation isn't new, it's definitely very prevalent right now. Um, mm. So we had no idea that we'd be entering into this time when we were about to share this film. But um, I think it's definitely brought about a whole, whole new excitement to be able to share something like this at this time, I think it's kind of any filmmaker's dream to have something that's resonating. Right. Of course. I, I hope people see it. I hope people see the film. I'm going to try to do my tiny little, little bit for that. Now uh, the a question I have to assume, I'm going to assume you were familiar with Steve McQueen's films. Yes, for sure. So favorite directors. Mine too. I remember meeting him in the New York film festival after watching the first big feature that came, now I'm going to blank for some reason. Hunger? Um, say again? Is it Hunger? Hunger, thank you. Sorry about that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I was so blown away by it. Um, and I thought, my God, this is a filmmaker to watch for. He's going to be an important filmmaker. And uh, so when did he come on your radar? And could you have ever imagined that one day you'd be cast in one of his films? Um, 
I definitely imagined <laughs> that I'd be cast. You did. One. That was a fix. Imagined in the sense of it was in my imagination that I'd love to be one day. Um, you know, if we found the right story to tell together, um, how soon it would be, I didn't know. But um, you know, yeah, I mean, Hunger for me is was also the film that brought him onto my radar. I was having a conversation with someone. They just, they just told me I needed to watch it, and so I did. Um, and then he was just stuck with me <laughs> without knowing. Um, you know, I watched 12 Years a Slave, I watched Widows, I watched Shame. Um, and every single one of his stories were just so, they, they just resonated with me. And just the, yeah. the integrity of, of, and truth in them and the silences in them, the, the, the way he filled space with them, um, his art. Um, it, was, it was just exciting. Every, there was no like mediocre scenes for me. Um, and it rings true when I got to meet him. Like he doesn't do small talk, you know whether you're on set or off set, like the words matter. It's like, let's talk about something that matters. You know, when I went into the first audition with him, the first thing he spoke about was Grenfell. You know, um, it wasn't, hey, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. It was just like, you know, so Grenfell, like, where was you when that happened? Like, how did that make you feel? We went straight into it. Um, and that's that's how he is. And it's it was so exciting to work with a director like that who cuts out all of the rubbish in a script and just goes, look, let's just get to the heart of the moment. And scrap everything else because what else matters, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been an, a joy for sure. How much was he involved in working on the character of Darkus How uh, with you? And what was that like? What were those conversations like? You know, one of the, the beautiful things genuinely about working with Steve is that as much as he is a, a visionary, like he knows exactly what he wants, but he hardly directed me, if I'm honest. He hardly directed anyone. You know, we get on set and he just lets us play and he moves us around every now and then. But I think for me, that was one of the most beautiful experiences I've had as an artist where I actually got to be an artist and express and have ownership of a character. And I think, you know, it was for all of us in, involved in the cast. He approached us in that same way. He was like, you know, be, he created the environment. He, he created, you know, he, he put everything in the room and said, here's your toys, play. And I'll, I'll catch it. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll get the cameras, we'll move around you. Um, and we'll catch it but just be and for me that's one of the best approaches I've had working with a director because it's not that he didn't know what he was doing you know um, and there were some scenes where you know there was a specific thing he wanted to do with the camera uh-huh. so he'd move us very specifically and said you know excuse me but can I just work with me on this but for the most part we just played and he caught it wow sounds like trust plays a big part there because it sounds like uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe he did a lot of preparation and chose his actors extremely, extremely carefully. So that that way he could put you in the room to play and trust that you guys would know what to do. Um, And it's okay to fail even if you trust your actors. I mean. Yeah, for for sure. And I mean, the other thing is we're shooting on film, you know, so it wasn't like we're on digital where we could do a whole bunch of takes over and over again. So, Precious film, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, we had yeah. two, three takes max. Usually it was one take and it's like, okay, we got it. Let's move on. Um, but prior to getting on set, he had already created that environment. You know, he, he'd already given us his energy, you know, and it was for all of us, it was like either give 100%, 110% or just go home. You know, why are you going to be here and not give everything that you have? And he gave everything that he had. And that was infectious, you know. Um, 
not just for the cast, but also for the crew. Everyone was running around sweating, giving every single moment all that we could. Um, and so, yeah, I think that really helped to build the trust that we had in the atmosphere. Were you curious, Edward, did you know much about what was going on with the other parts of the series, the other films? There's five of them, I believe. As part yeah, of the- there's five in total. Um, and I've, I was definitely curious. Um, I didn't get to read the scripts um, but I spoke with the producers when we were on set and just like, you know, Lover's Rock, like uh, education, like what's happening? What's it about? What's it about? Did you wish you were in Lover's Rock after you heard about that one? I bet you did. <laughs> <laughs> no, my mom would have loved to be in Lover's Rock. I know that much. <laughs> well, I was riveted. I mean, I would, I, w- I was watching at the New York Film Festival when at the New York Film Festival in my, you know, back here. Yeah. Uh, and I have a large screen around the corner. You can't see it there, but I was I was so excited to close the curtains and watch the films. And the only bad part is it's alone. I was alone, but I still would. I it was like a gift every time I got one of those uh, Steve McQueen films um, to be able to immerse myself in that experience. And it was a, it's a new world to watch these West Indian characters and their you know the stories. But at the same time, something as I was saying at the beginning that was uh, almost like a documentary in the sense of um, I was really watching these incredibly convincing scenes, you know, and, and, and the courtroom scenes in, in um, Mangrove, same, same experience. I just, I uh, felt very, very transported, you know, I don't know how else to describe it, but given to your acting and your fellow cast members. Oh, thank you. And I think yeah. it's also, you know, yeah. um, costume as well. Like it's in, that's one of the, the first things for me in terms of getting into character is, is the costume, you know, and you put that on and it's like, regardless of all the work that you've done, if the costume isn't right, it can just, for me, spoil the whole thing. And I put those clothes on and I felt like I was putting on my dad's clothes, you know, and like straight away. um, My uh, culture is like, my heritage is Jamaican. I was born in London. My dad is Jamaican. Um, And so, although you know, you have two different cultures here, definitely in terms of Trinidadian and Jamaican. There is a united thing in terms of the Caribbean. Um, and sure. so, yeah, to jump straight into that, to have the food on set, the smell of the food, you know, it, it does something, I think. Well, I was going to ask you, that was my next question about the catering. Was, yeah, <laughs> I mean, catering? between me and you, the catering, as opposed to the food we got to eat when we were in character was very different. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, <laughs> the food that we actually had, you know, when we were doing scenes and we were in the restaurant, um, oh, that was that was beautiful. Um, yeah, and it was the food that I, I eat back home, you know. So. Jerk, jerk. Yeah, so, see, when we use the term jerk in this conversation, it means something very different. Ah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jerk okay. chicken, that's my thing, man. Oh, that sounds good. And last question, I think we're getting down to the wire, but I did want to ask you since you brought it up earlier, uh, and that is your mother and maybe your parents more generally, did they, what did they, what did, how did they, how did they feel when they saw the film and what did, they, what was their reaction? Okay. Um, well, yeah, my, I brought my mom with me to the premiere. Um, she watched it with me. She sat down. Um, she definitely had a few tears. Um, I brought my auntie as well. Um, and yeah, her and my grandma, I think were the people that I wanted to share this with the most. Mm-hmm. Um, because of all the projects that I've done, this I think is the closest to an experience that they've had and shared. Um, and yeah, my mom, I mean, she, yeah, she's my mom. <laughs> so she's always proud of me. But I think sure. this one definitely um, affected her 
more so than other projects that I've done in terms of... And the authenticity, her feelings about the authenticity. Did Steve yeah, get it yeah. right? You know, um, for her, you know, I remember her saying, you know, she, um, I think I'm really looking forward to her seeing Lovers Rock, but even with the mango, you know, and, and the party scenes and where we dressed up, she's like, yeah, like in the music in it, you know, she was like, yeah, I used to listen to these tunes when she got raving or whatever. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a real joy to be able to, to share that with her. Well, congratulations. Malachi Kirby is one of the cast members of Mangrove. It's going to be, I believe, available on Amazon Prime on November 20th. I've got my details straight. Part of this whole series, um, and I recommend it. I think it's uh, just wonderful um, series of films. So <laughs> congratulations, and I, I hope we can do this again under other circumstances as well, maybe in person one day, maybe in the UK. I don't know. That'd be great. I'll come over and give you a hug someday. (laughs) (laughs) Nice meeting you. See you. Take care. You too. Good luck. Some years ago, uh, Sofia Coppola had released her film somewhere, I think that was the name of it, some years ago. I think this is two or three films back. And he was the star of that film, and I went to this press event in some hotel. It's like 10 years ago. And I sat next to Stephen, and I snapped a photo. <laughs> so I w- was wont to do at the time, I guess. Just sort of have a snapshot of the moment and of Sofia. Anyway, I, I was recently brought to my attention this film that Steven's in, who I'm kind of interested in. I think he's a, a good actor, and he's under underrated. I, I, I don't know if that's the right thing to say, but um, I, I was eager to bring him on the show and to find out more about him. Let me just tell you a drop about Embattled, which, by the way, is also available as of today on, thanks to IFC Center, on streaming platforms. Directed by Nick Sarkisov and screenplay by David McKenna. The film stars Stephen Dorff, Darren Mann, Elizabeth Reeser, Colin McKenna, and Donald Faison among its cast. Let's see, the synopsis. Raised by an abusive father, Cash, played by Stephen Dorff, channels his aggression to become a world champion MMA fighter. Now accustomed to wealth, adulation, and global popularity, he faces a new challenge when his second son is born with Williams Syndrome. 
But this time, rather than stand and fight, he runs. While Cash continues to make his fortune in the ring, his eldest son, Jet, played by actor Darren Mann, becomes the caregiver to his younger brother, Quinn, uh, Colin McKenna. When Jet decides to follow his father's fighting footsteps and take to the fight game, he faces his past head-on, embarking on a course inevitably pitting father versus son in a battle which, no matter the outcome, neither can win. It's a very, very exciting film, i got to tell you. And I'm very excited that uh, I finally got on uh, the actor Stephen Dorff. You know Stephen from somewhere, as I mentioned, the Sofia Coppola film. Stephen's also was uh, in the recent uh, season of True Detective. Uh, he's was in a movie in the movie Public Enemies, The Power of One, Backbeat, Shot. Uh, um, I shot Andy Warhol, Blood and Wine, uh, Blade, of course, Cecil B. Demented. Shadow Boxer, Oliver Stone's World Trade Center, and on and on. This is a guy who's been out there for a long time, and he got into some incredible physical condition for this role. Uh, but I was also interested in the psychology of a real bully, and, and, and Stephen and I talk about that, among other things. Here it is, my conversation with the actor, Stephen Dorff, here on Film Wax Radio. greatest fighter in the history of the sport. One of the most polarizing athletes in all of sports. Liquid! Cash! I know he's back in your life. Helping you follow your dreams. What's up? I'm with my boy Jet here. About to be arrested for child abuse. That's right. Mama's boy. Holy crap. But because of him... How's that feel? You've had to suffer. Suffer? No. They learn. Hey, how are you? Good, man. How you doing? Good. Nice to meet you. I think I, I met you on a press day type of situation probably about 10 years ago for a minute. We were all having a conversation about Sofia Coppola's film somewhere. So it's a bit Ooh. of time, some time ago. Nice. How yeah. you doing, man? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Are you in the basement? No, I'm in, uh, <laughs> in the attic. I'm in my, uh, I'm in my uh, uh, it's a ranch in Nashville. Gotcha. Um, oh, just, Nashville. Yeah. Is that home? Or uh, it's where I'm hanging right now, and it's my place that I got, yeah, a couple years ago, and did some work yeah. to it, and now it's done. And so I was kind of getting sick of sitting in L.A. It was the vibe wasn't happening really? So yeah, I, I understand. Kinda, you could probably breathe the oxygen in L.A. I mean, excuse me, Nashville too. Yeah, the air's the air's better out here in the uh, in the countryside where I am, and it's been kind of cool, and just kind of been waiting for telling somebody to tell me I'm going to do my job, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> I'm doing my job now, I guess, promoting. So Yes, cool. exactly. So, and I'm, I have no doubt when people uh, see this one uh, that uh, the work will be coming as soon as it's safe to do so. Obviously, Stephen, you, I mean, it speaks for itself. You've done a tremendous amount of physical preparation for the role of cash, but I was kind of also interested since I'm sure you're going to be asked by everybody about that. But I wanted to kind of ask you about the psychological side of it, because 
especially right now, your character's personality, his his issues, uh, they resonate especially, you know, the uh, he's a bit of a bully, one could argue, um, but he carries obviously around a lot of baggage. And um, so I didn't know, like, how, how if that required uh, as much preparation, did you have time for it to, uh, with all the physical preparation to kind of, because that's sort yeah. of your... The physic, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the physical was the uh, was a big uh, because I was coming off of True Detective, and I went right into this right. film because I'd signed while I was shooting True Detective in the beginning. Uh, it was a film I really wanted to make, and so everybody was worried that I wouldn't have the time I needed, but I knew I would. And and I'm I'm pretty fast at learning choreography. There were moves I needed to learn. I had a great team: Chris Connolly and. Fernando Chen and Don Lee, our stunt coordinator, um, provided incredible fight choreography, which really matched what the story was telling, what these characters were saying. And, and, and so there wasn't much to, to change there. So it was really about learning those efficiently. But, you know, to play the character, to play the guy, I've played a lot of villains in my career coming from playing good guys recently and, and, and playing really... Um, incredible people you know recently like my character in true detective and really good honest mm-hmm. you know whether they're policemen whether they're you know uh, whatever they are you know different kinds of characters you know playing the villain can be easy sometimes and be the flashier part in this movie this was a very difficult role for me to play it was a very difficult Why? to come out yeah. um he's just not he's not a very nice person you know he's a brilliant fighter He's a brilliant businessman. He can be funny at times, but he's also stuck in his old traditions, probably from getting the shit beat out of him by his own, by his, own. his own father. Right. Um, stuck in these old kind of way deep old school ways, and in, in the way he's you know got all this money but won't help people out. Uh, wants his you know kids to starve to death until they become a man. I mean, you know, he's a he's definitely a bully. He's definitely a nasty person. And, um, with a lot of flash and with a lot of charisma in a, you know, he also breaks rules. He takes drugs. He, you know, he, he, I mean, this guy is, he drinks, was not, yeah, yeah, no holds barred on the page. So, uh, all id, you know, this, he's all id, right? Steven, he's all id. I mean, you know what I mean? What does that mean? Well, I mean, mean? id, id. He's all like about, Physical desires, his physical, you know, it's all about going with that gut feeling of, you know, indulging himself in every way. It's probably like, you know, know, I I tried to compare it to, uh, you know, maybe back in the day when De Niro went into. That's exactly what I was going to bring up next. You know, how do you how do you play Jake LaMotta and feel yeah. good about yourself at the end of the day? It's, it's right. a bit hard. It, it's a very tricky, but, you know, then again, what we do is called acting. And what yeah. we do is try to fill different energies and different um, people and, 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 and embody something that can translate to an audience. And therefore maybe that audience then walks away and becomes mm-hmm. a better father, maybe becomes a, a better champion. Maybe our own champions see themselves within cash and go, Whoa, maybe I should tone this down a bit. I don't want to end up like cash. You know, who knows? I tried to take as far as champions, that to me resembled who Cash was on the page. I tried to imagine a Conor McGregor's kind of pizzazz, feistiness, cockiness, talent, uh, stripped of his Irish swagger 
but uh -huh. with a Southern Alabama swagger thrown in there to find cash mixed with a little Floyd Mayweather, as far as his business sense and this money and his name, Cash Boykins, and this kind of iconic thing that Mayweather seems to have. And then, you know, look at other champions, look at other fighters, whether it was Cowboy Cerrone and other age groups of guys that I thought would embody who I thought Cash at 45 or 46 should be like. And, and, and me and my directors, Nick, we kind of built him based on that. And then physically and mentally, it all kind of came together. But it was a, definitely a hard one for me. I mean, definitely I would more challenging. You know, I thought when, before I said yes to it. Right. So. Well, yeah, because as you pointed out, you, you played villains that may be more two-dimensional, perhaps. This was somebody who you had to give more texture to, more nuance to, et cetera. Yeah, like, like, yeah. when you're playing you know, a villain in a, you know, in a comic book movie or, or in a gangster movie, you know, it's tongue-in-cheek villainous. They want them to be cute and sexy. They want them to be mean in moments. They, you know, it's pretty... You know, and then in the execution is whether that actor pops or not in that role, whether it's Jack and, you know, the first Batman, you know, Batman as the Joker, whether it was, sure. you know, Hans in Die Hard, you know, Alan Rickman or uh, it's Alan Rickman, right? Yeah. Classic, classic. Yeah. Yeah. Classic, you know, classic great villains. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, talk about Deacon Frost and Blade that I played and, you know, but this was definitely different. This was not that. This was so real. And so honest with who this guy is that there's no room for the tongue in cheek. There's no room for cutesiness. There's the, whether he's being funny or not, he is, he is a damaged individual. Yeah. But and, you know, which is a unstoppable kind of crazy combination, you know, it's uh, yeah. And, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers. So I won't mention the, the last section other to say that, they could have given you the happy ending in the sense of the, the moment where you break down and you come together with, you know, I, I, I just want to say without giving away details, cause it's very tricky ground here, you know, like they don't wrap it up in a nice little pink bow. Let's put it that way. The character still kind of ends up kind of where he started off on some level. Like you don't get that Hollywood ending is my point. Right. No, I mean, look, when I was making this movie and it's a great point, you know, I, I fought for, um, I fought to have a happier ending and David McKenna Why? wrote, wrote one. I, I, my instinct was, I just wanted to see, but in the end we shot it too. I mean, it was, you know, it was more of a scene where, my my kids, both my kids find me drunk and, you know, in my lawn and they pick me up and we hug each other and we walk off into the sunset and gave a, a bit of like, maybe Cash is going to get it together and be a better father uh, in the in the little dialogue that was in that scene. And in retrospect, man, the ending of the movie was what David originally wrote and he was right and, and the director was right and I was wrong. I uh, You know, by ending it with um, the way it ends is it ends on a beautiful memory of, of a kid that remembers that there are, there is somebody nice in there. There is love in there. And I think in the moment without giving it away, my own film, you know, there is some emotion that I do show in that arena at the end of the movie, at the end of that sequence. And um, in that moment, you know, that he's human for the first time, you know, that, that he can cry, you know, and he's about to, and uh, he's proud in his own dark, sick way of what his son is becoming. And um, 
um, even though we know what happens. And so I can't give that away or, or tease any of that. But what I can say is, is that uh, I think ultimately they made the right decision. I don't think this is a movie where there, there is a change that fast. I don't think, to be honest, Cash will ever change. Will he become a better father to Quinn and Jet in the, in the future? Will he beg for forgiveness to his wife and try to get his son Kingston back? I think so, hopefully. I would like to think so, but because I, I, I like to think that people can change and get better in time as they get older. But the real, the reality is, is people don't change sometimes. And I don't see him changing and I don't see her coming back to him. And I don't, you know, but I do see him waking up a little bit by the end of the film in a subtle way. And that's really all that was meant to give. I don't think the happy ending of us walking into the sunset, Cash is a changed man and he's going to go to therapy tomorrow is the reality. I don't think it's going to happen. I have to agree. And that's why I think the, 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 the film, I agree with you, the film does end on an honest note. He's a broken guy. And if you're going to unbreak, you got to do the work. And we don't see him really doing that work. I mean, you know, it's... And when he's left alone. And I think in a way, that's where David McKenna and, and, and um, life moves on for the, for the good people in, the, in this picture. Um, life gets pretty lonely for Cash because he's still got all his money and all his cars, but a bunch of people that he doesn't know around him dancing on Molly in his backyard. You know, that is that where he's going to end up as a legacy? Who knows? But, you know, a good movie makes you think about things like that. And I appreciate your questions because they're smart. Cool. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that too. Well, I've already, I've written a sequel here already, Stephen. I've got your sequel right here. And you'll be glad to know... In, in in Battle 2, that he ends up uh, back with his wife in a great relationship with his son, uh, his children, I should say. Uh, by the way, I'm kidding, of course. I don't uh, have it finished yet. <laughs> but uh, hey, Who knows? Let's see how we should do. Yeah, Let's exactly. Well, it's got that a good start. Champion. It's a new champion. You know, you never know. Yeah. Well, it's got a good head start. It's got Stephen Dorff in it. It's got... Um, good distribution company, IFC Films is distributing it, so people will see it. You know, it's good, good for you and good for the film. And now I forgot where I was going with it. Oh, yeah, I do remember now. You, he also intentionally made one of your children have a, a syndrome I really wasn't familiar with by name. It's called Williams Syndrome. This is uh, the the there, you have a couple of kids, one of whom is uh, the kid you're kind of uh, what's the word uh, you're preparing your your grooming right for. To kind of, yeah. I guess you could read that now that I think about it as your way of continuing your mortality. Like you, you know, you make your son continue. The name is the top MMA fighter, right? In your, yeah. You I mean, you're basically building building his son's career again. Cash is a businessman and wants, yeah, you know, wants his son to work hard for it. But you know, uh, right? Uh, yeah, William syndrome. I mean, Colin uh, McKenna is David McKenna's son, our screenwriter, and he has William syndrome, and he's just, I think, phenomenal in the movie. I think it it's so real because it's really him. Yes. But yet he's so lovable and uh, and such a great character, and it was hard for me to to meet some of these young people and actors and have to be so nasty on camera to them. And <laughs> to so be- I had to. I had to kind of explain to them, look, when we say action, I'm going to be not a nice guy to you. But, you know, when we're off camera, you're, I'm back, you know, and this is just a game, you know, and this is, you know, you understand. And, 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 and they did, you know, and they were pro. 
but it's it was hard it was that's something i hadn't really done before you know and that and in all my years of making films i i haven't worked with you know an eight-year-old where i'm you know beating them up sort of you know i mean this is not this is not behavior uh you know even of your worst villains sometimes because of how real it is in this film it's 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 an intense family story very dysfunctional very very tormented going there's there's a lot of issues in cash you're 100 percent right you know? I was reading recently about or I, uh, this story. Sidney Poitier made a film way back called uh, in the I think it was in the probably in the fifties called No Way Out. I don't know if you have ever seen it, but Sidney plays uh, a, 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 an African American doctor, of course, and he he's the the, the what's it Richard Widmark? You remember Richard Widmark? You sort of bear a small resemblance to actually, but uh, Richard Widmark, who played great villains, said such racist things against him in the in his role. And in between takes, he would stop and he would keep apologizing to Poitier because, you know, he felt so bad. And Poitier goes, man, we're acting, you know. But Widmark felt so horrible about it. Yeah. You know, anyway. Just reminded me when you were talking about this thing where you're playing such a beast, such a, you know. Move a little closer to the mic, just to drop, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, it's hard. Thank you. uh, It's hard. It's a weird, awkward uh position to be in but ultimately we're there to do a job and we have to we have to lay it down right we have to lay down what the text is and what the sure. story is but young performers did a great job and colin never having acted before just i mean he just he's a great guy great kid it's it's well it's a very it's I, i'm glad you mentioned raging bull it was actually on my mind when i watched it and also in that film you know de niro certainly and de scorsese they don't turn him into a you know uh, some sort of they don't make it all of a sudden him change just like that. You know, he's obviously bro- another broken guy, you know, uh, who mm-hmm. is very much alone by the end of the film. Uh, but just to change topics for a second, there's a lot of MMA in the film. You're like an extraordinarily successful MMA fighter. And uh, I know you were trained with and you worked with MMA. And in fact, there are some MMA star- stars, people in the actual film. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Um I mean, um, what did they yeah, make of your performance? And what did they make of your performance by the end of it? Did well, they I haven't give talked you- to a lot of the guys. I haven't talked to. I, I've talked to Kenny Florian, who's a you know legend um, in in MMA, and he he plays one of the announcers, kind of like a Joe Rogan type, and uh, and also Tyron Woodley, who who had the belt and was the champion when we when we filmed. I think he he lost one fight recently. I'm not sure, but um great guys. I mean, they were really impressed with what they were seeing because they were there for all the fights um sure. in that that arena. Um you know, I had a great team uh from uh you know, Don Lee as a stunt coordinator, Fernando Chen, um and Chris Connolly really who is a uh, incredible guy who I've been doing interviews with this morning. He's in Abu Dhabi with uh a couple of his fighters about to have a huge UFC fight out there uh, on Saturday. So we were doing interviews from Abu Dhabi and uh, he's uh, he was an incredible asset to the production. He not only taught me moves I didn't know how to do. He helped me learn the choreography. He gave us pointers and tips while shooting on, you know, he then he also played the referee in, in, in the big, in the big fight at the end. He was incredibly uh, helpful and a big asset to the production. And, uh, um, so far, a lot of the MMA guys that normally would, you know, would, would say cheese if they didn't like uh, something, they would be able to smell it right away because this is their world, right? Which seems like all these sure, sure, sure. podcasts and places are really 
finding this to be one of the most realistic UFC films ever, you know, uh, as far as MMA goes on, on in a film story. So, you know, for me, it was a family film. It's a, it's a father and son story set against the backdrop of the MMA world. And, and it's not just a typical fight movie. So allow yourself to, to go the distance here in this story when you watch it, because you're going to, you're going to learn some things. It's not just, get ready to tumble around. I mean, you'll, that'll, it'll deliver that as well, but it'll deliver a big punch in some other ways emotionally, I think. Well put. Well, thank you for your time. The name of the movie is called Embattled. It premieres uh, on November 20th. Did you know? Just letting you know that. And stars... Yeah, uh, select theaters <laughs> and VOD. Select theaters where we can, where we can Do get it. some theaters open and then uh, everywhere else at home. All right. Great meeting you again. And uh, good luck with the film. Thank you, buddy. You bet. All right. right. Have a good day. Hard work. Adversity. That's how winners are made. It never stops. And I always feel like a failure. Don't forget. You're the most wonderful, loving, giving brother. This might be the worst push-ups I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. I learned it from you. Thanks for including me. Always, sport. Got Jed a fight. He's got a bright future. Let's end it now. Jed Boykins is your winner. Fighting is in the That's what you do. You're laughing. What is that? You've been offered another fight? Unfortunately, it's against me. The most controversial fight in WFA history. Between Cash Boykins and his 18-year-old son, Jeff. Every 18-year-old kid out there deserves a good old-fashioned ass whooping. He's been saying that exact same line to me since I was three. You got to dance with the devil, huh? Pray I never end up like you. You won't. Tomorrow night, you die. Dance with the devil, huh? Don't bet on it. Thank you for listening. We have coming up in the next episode or two, I mentioned Ileana Douglas with Scott Iman, the author of a new book about Cary Grant. And, um, I'm excited to bring uh, both of my friends, Scott Iman and Ileana, back to the podcast. On the next episode, uh, we have uh, also coming up uh, Sean Durkin, the director of a new, he, of course, made Martha Marcy May Marlene some 10 years ago. He has a new feature called The Nest with Jude Law and Carrie Coons and Margot Martindale, who is in a, a new, wonderful new film called Uncle Frank. I saw it. I loved it. I would love to have brought on everybody from that film, but I always, lo- I love Margot and she was on earlier in the summer or in the spring and uh, it was a terribly recorded show. And I said, I got to bring her back. All that is coming up. Thank you very much for listening. Take care of yourselves and the ones you love until next time. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads.
broken spring. 